TJ, let's get started. We're going to continue. We have one more presentation this year in our Isaiah 58 series, and that's next week. And after that, holidays kind of take over. Um, so next week, it, we're looking at um, Isaiah 58 and some of Isaiah 59. There are some powerful promises to God's people in Isaiah 58 and 59. We've touched on them, but we haven't really stopped to reflect on them. So that will be the last in this year's uh, Isaiah 58 series. We'll be kicking in uh, next year into some additional reflections. Uh, so this is next to last in our Isaiah 58 reflections, and we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. PJ, why don't you start for us? Pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful, again, for the opportunity to come into your house. We ask for your continued blessings upon us today, that you will teach us um, that as we speak, that our hearts and minds may be turned towards you and grant us wisdom. We invite your spirit, Lord, to dwell with us today. In Jesus' name, I ask all of these things. Amen. Amen. One of the founding members of our faith, Ellen White, made some powerful comments about the story of the Good Samaritan. So we're actually going to jump to those, and you might consider, and I apologize on the screen, um, if you want to get the full quote Go to our YouTube channel because the YouTube will be able to show the full screen quote. If you're here this morning, our stable, which we love as a reminder of Christmas, will be in the way for some of the reading. So just know that if you go online, you'll be able to see the, the full quote. Um, I will probably also add today's uh, slide set. On our website, there is a, a web page devoted to sermon notes, and I will add um, last time and was that last week? Was it last week? It was last week. Last week and this week's slide sets, so you can actually go through those slide by slide if you'd like to. Um, so just an FYI, because again, you're going to be missing some of the text because the stable's in the way. You can find that YouTube. You can also, we'll be able to access the slide set um, probably this evening. I'll have it up by this evening so you can access that on our website. So the Good Samaritan actually lays the foundation. Let me pull that slide up here. Actually lays the foundation for the for what it means to love neighbor. And I wanted to pull into, TJ had grabbed some great stuff for us, just part of this quote, and then is gonna read the next slide, but just this middle piece, the Samaritan represents a class who are true helpers with Christ and who are imitating his example in doing good. Those who have pity for the unfortunate, the blind, the lame, the afflicted, the widows, the orphans, and the needy, Christ represents as commandment keepers who shall have eternal life. And then one more, this one, next slide. If you'd read that for us, TJ, uh, a great introductory thought as we look at the story of the Good Samaritan. In this parable are summed up, summed up all the principles contained in the law. Eternal life is the theme. 
And when the principles of justice and mercy are in any way violated in, the wor in word or in practice, those who thus disobey God's express injunctions commit a sin of far greater magnitude than was the sin committed in Eden, because sin was a new thing to our first parents. Pretty powerful statement. Yeah. I think it, it goes to show how important, how critical God deems our care for mm. others, particularly those who are in need. Yep. And that first line is quite poignant. In this parable are summed up all the principles contained in the law. That's a pretty powerful introduction to this story, which we're now gonna go back and read. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it begins like this. Now I'll go back to my, my big screen. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. This is one of those confrontations. By the way, the, the normal scenario was for the rabbi to be seated, and the students to be standing. That was the respect tradition in, in that time. And normally, the teacher would be teaching and testing, right? You never go into your grade school and test the teacher. Well, maybe you did, because you were a rascal in grade school. Um, this is the student testing the teacher. Maybe he wasn't much of a student. So he asks this question, teacher, what, must, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Keep that question in mind. It really does set the framework for Jesus' answer. This parable, which I think it's also not a far stretch to say was a story taken from the Jerusalem Times, He asked, the teacher asked the question, again, trying to trip Jesus up. He's hoping that Jesus, in his answer of how to attain eternal life, will give him some, some, um, some ammunition, yeah, thank you, some ammunition for attacking Jesus. Let's continue. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? Because this guy's a lawyer, right? A lawyer, by the way, is someone who studied the Torah, was very familiar with the entire Old Testament, but especially familiar with the teachings of Moses, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all the instructions on the life of the Israelite, on temple worship, on the role of the priest, the role of the Levite, etc. What is written in the law? You're a lawyer. What's written in the law? What is your reading of it? Interesting, Jesus asks an interpretive question. What's written and how do you read it? What's your summary? What's, what's your conclusion of what you read in the law? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. There's such a great deal of presumption in the lawyer's answer, right? As he's seeking to, to set Christ up, right? For what he believes 
Hmm. He knows what the answer is. I think it's, it is a beautiful way that Christ actually asked him, right? What is the law and how do you see it? Hmm. Because he's getting ready to challenge what his answer is going to be. Right, that's right. I, I do want to ask the question, because I think it's worth asking, especially in this series, how does he get the right answer but miss the point? Right, Jesus told him, right, at the end of the text, you, you've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. This lawyer, as he's looking, as he's reflecting on his legal studies of the Torah, his summary, his reading of the Torah is summed up in those two points. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how he, this is not Jesus' summary. This is the lawyer's summary. And Jesus says, you're spot on. So how did he get the answer right and miss it? What do you think? I think, unfortunately, um, their societal structure had defined what this answer was going to be. Mm. So rather than seeing this from the framework that God had established, their national pride, their mm. national prejudice had shaped who they saw was, they na- was their neighbor, who they were responsible to. Mm. So in his response, he sought to mold his answer based on those preconceived notions. Mm. As we've been studying Isaiah 58, this topic, you've heard us say it to you, we've encountered this question multiple times ourselves. How do we get the right answers? But as Seventh-day Adventists, have missed the point. Right. It's the constant theme that we've looked at, right? Unfortunately, I think we suffer from the same symptoms that ancient Israel did. Mm. Is that we read the text, read the text, read the text, but because we bring what we want into that text, rather than allowing God to show us what's truly there, we make the same mistake that the lawyer did. Hmm. We make the same mistake that the nation did. I mean, we, as you stated, we have pondered so often during this series, how is it that we have gotten so far off track? And if you question whether or not we are on track, I would ask you to consider the state of our church. Hmm. Where's the power that was promised to us? Where's the impact that we should be having within the community and with those around us? It's not there in the fullness that it should be because we've drifted. Mm. We've drifted away from the principles that God established for us. I don't know whether to say this, but I guess I'm going to... There's not a lot of people here say it. You won't get in trouble. Um, <laughs> there might be more people online now. <laughs> um, could it be that, we're, that we are reaping the cumulative 
impact of decisions our forefathers made. Mm. Um, for instance, during the Civil War, during the end of slavery, Seventh-day Adventists had a window. In fact, we had members, not, well, we had close association, and, and maybe you could say members, who were strong voices in the, um, abolition, movement. In the abolition movement. But Seventh-day Adventists, on another side of it, failed to fully mobilize to work for the restoration of the newly liberated slaves. So, so and I think there's been other times in our history where, where we, our forefathers, had the opportunity of living into a moment of, of history to stand with the oppressed but, and I don't know necessarily the reasons. Was it social pressure? What, what were the reasons? So when our forefathers kind of pulled back from taking the full risk of standing for and, and of working for the enslaved Africans and their liberation, does that then have an impact on how we see the importance of neighbor today. Patty has a question or a comment. Right. I'm looking at it from, from a broader perspective. I would, I would challenge anyone to go back and read the compilation book, The Southern Work. In that book, Ellen White describes the God-ordained mission that the church was supposed to carry forward after the end of slavery. I've looked at this for almost a year and a half now, I mean, two years. And I be, believe the purpose of that effort and again, if you, if you go back and read, you will see this played out um, ad nauseum in her statements. The purpose for that effort was, was essentially for the people to, to replicate the effort that God went through when he brought Israel out of bondage. We've talked previously about um, the way that God had given the commandments in, um, in Deuteronomy. Right, um, in Exodus, and that was a, there was a particular focus, one on creation and one on the deliverance from bondage. It was God's purpose for this small, fledgling church to be on the forefront of relieving oppression. That way, whenever oppression rose, the Adventist church would be the pinnacle of light. So whether you're talking about slavery, whether you're talking about um, uh, sex trafficking, sex trafficking, whether you're talking about what occurred during the Holocaust or, or uh, 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 during the World War Japanese internment, 
whether you're talking about some of the issues, some of the difficult issues to express today, right? When we look at what's, what's going on. It was his goal that this peculiar people, again, that they wouldn't be peculiar because of the way they dress or the way they eat, but because they were an affront to the rest of the world because of the way that they treated people. Hmm. Their behavior was, would be such a stark difference to the rest of the world that it would draw those who were seeking God to us. Hmm. That's that power mm-hmm. that I was talking about, that power that we seem to be lacking because rather than push away from the, from the way that the rest of the world works, we've capitulated. Hmm. And at times there's no difference between us and them. Not that we're better, we're not better, we're different. Hmm. Sorry. I'm sorry, what did you say? It's a compilation book called The Southern Work. It's probably, it would be available on the Ellen White yes. app mm-hmm. or on the Ellen White website. Um, why do a brief history commentary? Simply to say this, that you and I are the, the grandchildren in the Adventist faith of our forefathers. And loving neighbor is a proposition that always involves risk. Our forefathers pulled back because they weren't willing to embrace the risk. It wasn't universal, there was definitely work, but it could have been more. And so we're only highlighting this to to ask ourselves the question, in what ways are we following in the footsteps, pulling back because of the risks of being misunderstood or mislabeled, et cetera, following in their footsteps? And in what ways is God calling us to step up and step out? This is part of the challenge the Good Samaritan story brings us to is that loving neighbor is always an act that involves risk. So if that wasn't too radical for you, just a call to think about our history and think about our own present relationship to neighbor and to what extent our own fear or anxiety is driving how we relate to neighbor. If there was no risk, would your life, my life, be different in relationship to neighbor? Right. So we're gonna continue the story. This is in uh, verse 29. The lawyer speaking again, well, not quite about to speak, but he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself. He wanted to give himself a big pat on the back for how saved he was, how ready for the kingdom he was, and so he asks Jesus the question, and who is my neighbor? This is a fascinating question, and I just learned this week, one of those things that was in the text all along, but I had missed it, just learned this week, that the question the lawyer asks is not the question Jesus answers. You have to keep your eyes open because by the end of the parable, Jesus reframes the question and the way he reframes the question changes the entire 
response, the point of Jesus' answer. So the lawyer's asking, who is my neighbor, which is a question of social classification. There are people who are neighbors that should be loved, and there are people who are not neighbors who should not be loved. You get that? That's where he's going. Who is my neighbor? If I've got a love neighbor, then I need to know who my neighbor is so I can love them and be ready to inherit eternal life. In the lawyer's mind, that's the point of his question. Who qualifies as neighbor? Notice this quote by Jesus. It is in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and what? So again, Jesus is, is, is pointing out, calling to attention the classification that existed in the minds of his listeners. There were two basic groups of people, friends and enemies. The lawyers operating with the same assumption there are two classes of people, neighbors and not neighbors. And to be in harmony with God, all I've got to do is love neighbors. This text again is in that same vein of social classification, people deserving of my love and people not deserving of my love. So keep that in mind. Jesus doesn't answer that question. But we're not there yet. TJ, why don't you continue the story for us? Luke 10.30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Okay, so hang on. We're going to wait, hold off on the final piece of that text. Let's go back to verse 30 and just talk through this text a bit this morning. There isn't a lot to say about this part. A man found himself in a horrific situation. He is ambushed on his way. Um, down to Jericho. He's coming from Jerusalem. It is not a stretch to assume that he was a Jewish man. Wouldn't have to be, but that's kind of uh, where tradition places it, is that he was a Jewish man headed down to Jericho. And uh, the roads back then were quite treacherous. This was not a long trip per se, but it ran through enough open territory, uh, at least enough uninhabited territory, that you could be ambushed on your way. Uh, not unlike some nighttime walks in uh, certain parts of town, maybe not so much here, but you could easily find yourself in a bad part of town in Boston or some of our larger, larger cities. This is the same situation, going from one place to another, and he is ambushed. Do you have any comments on this part of the story? No, not initially. <laughs> All right, so two individuals come by. Who are they? A priest and a 
Now, I want you to notice something fascinating. The lawyer at the beginning of the story is asked by Jesus, because his big question is, how do I inherit eternal life, right? Then Jesus said, well, what's the law say? How do you read it? His big interpretation of the law was two big, big ideas. What were the two big ideas? Love God and love your neighbor. That's the lawyer's reading of the law, right? So now, as Jesus comes to these two characters, priest and Levite, he's coming back to the law, to the Torah. And as the lawyer hears this part of the story, he's thinking of all of the teaching, both his teaching and the teaching in Torah, on how priests and Levites should behave. Jesus is setting up a collision course between the, the Levite, excuse me, the lawyer's overarching teaching on the law and the application of the law. Because notice, the lawyer says you've got to love neighbor, right? That's Torah, is love to neighbor. And then two men who should be highly representative of Torah, priest and Levite, act in violation of the same Torah that the, that the lawyer has just quoted. What do you think about right. that? This, this is the representation of the leadership of mm. the church. Right. right. The ones are, who are supposed to reflect God's character, the ones who are supposed to be carrying out mm. his will. Right? So they had that understanding that I'm to love my neighbor, but again, because of that preconceived notion of what a neighbor was, rather than doing what God would have them do, they do the exact opposite. Yeah. I think it's interesting to notice the, the priest part. And when he saw, yes, and when he saw him, the priest, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest doesn't think twice. When he sees a body, he simply crosses because it's programmed into the priest and his understanding of his role that he should avoid bodies by the side of the road. In other words, this priest is not acting out of animus toward the injured man. He's acting out of his understanding of religious duty. How is it that the people of God, who according to the lawyer believed that loving God and loving neighbor was the grand summary of Torah, could simultaneously have programmed into their theological DNA the violation of Torah. How do those two things inhabit the same religious space? What's scary is that he thoroughly, thoroughly believes that he's right. Right. And would argue that point to anyone. And I think the lawyer would have argued that the priest was right. right. Yep. Because it's, it's, it's the letter of the law right. that I'm adhering to. Yes. The contamination laws touching blood, maybe this guy's dead. He doesn't even want to find out if he's dead because it could contaminate and disqualify him. He's going to have to go through a purification ritual. So I want you to see here in this story how sometimes on one hand we hold a certain theological view on paper, but then in application, because we haven't stopped to reflect deeply about it and carefully about it, in application, we might actually be in violation of the thing we claim to follow 
because there's a gap between our answer and the way we apply it. You mentioned something excuse me, interesting that I hadn't thought about, that had he touched that man, now he's got to go through that purification ritual. Right. right? So, so there is this level of sacrifice that he would now have to take upon himself right, to go through that ritual and whatever it requires, the separation that it requires. We don't know whether, whether that played a role in the story, but I do think it's interesting and applicable to us. How many times do we not do something because of the sacrifice that's required? Mm. I've got to get my hands dirty. I've got to go out and do this thing. I've got to go out and be with those people. And because we do not want to engage, we find a reason to justify our lack of activity. Hmm. The other thing you find in the priest and the Levite is, is what they believed is religious priority. Religious priority was being true to their priestly or Levitical roles, which they did not see as including radical love for neighbor. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the grand priority as they understood it was not care for the hurting, care for neighbor, what was, but was maintaining their religious order. But the lawyer had just said, the two great summaries of Torah is love God and love neighbor, right? right. Now notice how Jesus keeps cranking up the heat. If you're familiar with the story of, in John 3, of a woman by a well in Samaria or near Samaria, you understand that there was extreme, and I don't know why I'm having a hard time with the words this morning, but extreme racial tension, extreme Prejudice. national pride, prejudice, etc., that was active in this region. The Samaritans were viewed as mongrels, and that, that view wasn't just that they were multinational, had multinational DNA, but was a view that they, by nature of that mixed DNA, had compromised their identity as God's people. And they were looked down upon because of that as inferior. They had, they had mixed up worship traditions that, that was a hybrid of, of passed on idolatry, etc., idol worship, and some linking into the Jewish faith. This, this, this again, this hybrid faith. And because of that, they were deeply despised. And who's the guy that walks into the story after the priest and the Levite? It's this despised, non-religious, irreligious, doesn't mean he wasn't religious, but they're seeing him as this total opposite antithesis to priest and Levite is the Samaritan. You couldn't in that moment get farther away from a priest and a Levite than to be a Samaritan. This guy, as he comes sees him, and what's his first reaction? To have compassion. What's fascinating to me is here, to have compassion is not simply a 
feeling in your heart. But it's an action. It certainly may include a feeling, but it's an action. Compassion is never truly compassion unless compassion becomes action. We're also going to find that's true about neighbor. That neighbor is more of a verb than it is a noun. Now, technically in the language, it's still a noun. But the idea here is that compassion and neighboring are not things you can have apart from action. What's interesting is this is this is who he was. Mm. Despite the abuse and mistreatment that he re had received from individuals like the one who was there wounded and bleeding, it didn't matter. There was no respecter of person. He didn't mm. look at him and say, you deserve what you got. There was an immediate need and desire within him to help. Mm -hmm. that man, mm -hmm. regardless of what the cost was going to be to him, right? You mentioned that risk. Mm. I mean, here's a man who's bloodied and beaten. Same thing could have happened to the Samaritan. But that wasn't the thought in his mind. It was simply seeing someone that was in need and he was willing to risk all that he had to take care of him. Mm. Great observation. So the story continues, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, etc. We read the text already, but he has compassion. That compassion immediately translates into doing what he can to meet the needs of the man on the side of the road. This is a man with some, some money. He has an animal with him. That's not necessarily a common, a common fact in the society of the times. An animal. Jesus, remember, borrows an animal to ride into Jerusalem. So even Jesus doesn't have, his disciples don't have animals. So the fact that he has an animal with him is an indication of some means. He could have been a merchant. Um, it wouldn't be surprising if that's what he was, a merchant traveling on his way between cities. So the next day, he... He's taken him to the inn, right? Some, some inn along the road takes him to the inn. This is an interesting thought that came to me last night, that the, the story is also practical. So on one hand, you have this great risk. He stops in an area where it's clear that bandits, bandits have been recently present. Whether they're still there or not, they have been. So there is a risk that he could be victim number two. He has an animal. The implication is he probably has money on him, right? So he is setting himself up to be the next victim by helping the victim. By the way, if you stop to help somebody, whose attention are you focused on, right? The injured man, so he is distracted in a dangerous part of the road, likely with cash on him. So he's taking risk, using his resources, spending the night with the man to make sure he's stabilized. But here's the interesting part. The story's also quite practical. He continues his journey and covers for the man in the story. I just think that's an interesting twist here that Yes, he sacrifices, but then it is also okay to work with other people in carrying 
the responsibility of caring for neighbor. Right. He leaves him in the hands of someone that he believes that he can trust. Mm -hmm. Right. There's obviously there's, there's a mutual respect or some right. type of relationship between these two because he's going to go off and do his business and says, I'll be back. Mm -hmm. right? and, when, and whatever whatever else happens, whatever whatever other costs are incurred, I'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. Right. So the in-clique keeper is playing this partnership role. Yes. Right? With the Samaritan. I think that's a great example for us. When we look at this story, the Good Samaritan is a representation of Christ. Hmm. And I see it as him partnering with us for the care of those that are less fortunate, of those that are needy. The question is, are we going to live up to our role? Hmm. When these ones that need are brought to us, are we going to care for them while the master goes and does his business? Hmm. Good question. So we're going to, I think we're now going to go to the question that we didn't yet ask. And uh, TJ, why don't you mm -hmm. read that for us, verse 36 and 37. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay, so let's go back to the first question. Uh, let's see. No, here's the first question right here. There it is. On the screen for you. The man, the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? That's a question of social classification, right? Who's my neighbor? When I know who my neighbor is, then, uh, then I'll love that class of people and obviously I don't have to love the people that are not my neighbors. I said Jesus didn't answer the question, and I want you to notice that here in this last text. So Jesus' reframing of the question is quite different. Which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, do you think was neighbor to who? The wounded man. So now the question of neighbor has nothing to do with classification, but opportunity. You see the shift there. Neighbor is an action or response to the person in our path in need. Neighbor is not a classification of persons. And it's applicable to whoever is in need. Mm whether they be black or white, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, immigrant mm. or citizen. If they are in need, it is our duty, it is our responsibility to help. Mm. We, don't, we, don't, we don't compromise ourselves, but providing assistance to those in need is who Christ was. Mm. It was the foundation for his willingness to step down from glory and sacrifice himself for this sinful world. We were in that position. Mm. This one little blue dot out of all of the vast creation that succumbed to sin. He made the choice to step down and sacrifice himself. Mm. 
And what he is asking is for us to take the same step to those around us. Mm -hmm. And the standard is, it's quite simple. You respond, I respond to the person in need with what I have. I may not be walking down the Jericho Road with a donkey. But I use what I have in my possession to act, to intervene, to respond to the need at hand. So TJ and I may respond differently. I don't get to look at TJ and say, well, TJ, you're not a good Samaritan because I saw how you. There is a sense in which the overarching principle of loving neighbor is absolutely clear. But then there is this sense in which it moves into highly personalized territory. We're all called to be moved by compassion, and we're all called to recognize that compassion is, is primarily an action and not a feeling. But when it comes to acting, I don't know what your capacity for action is, so I'm not in a position to evaluate your action. Same goes my direction. So there is this fascinating place in the story of Scripture where we, we get these clear principles and all of a sudden we end up in kind of the weeds. The weeds being, I can't sit here, TJ can't sit here and give you an exact prescription for how it, what it means to be a good Samaritan in your life. We can talk about the big principles, but only you and God know what that looks like for you to live into the call of neighboring. And and neighboring, kind of trying to change that word from a noun to, is that an adjective? Roberta might know, but anyway, into, into a verb. Where neighboring is how we respond to the people in our path who have need. That's what it means to be a neighbor. I wanted to read this uh, before we continue. This is uh, Ellen's comments, Ministry of Healing 25. Christ recognized no distinction of nationality or creed or rank. The scribes and Pharisees desired to make a local and a national benefit of the gifts of heaven and to exclude the rest of God's family in the world. But Christ came to break down every wall of partition. He came to show that his gift of mercy and love is as unconfined as the air, the light, or the showers of rain that refresh the earth. So here's a question I asked TJ, and I'm going to ask it to you. Is it a testing truth? I'm using Adventist language right now, so forgive me for those of you not familiar with this language. Is it a testing truth to love neighbor? So in other words, is it, is it the key element? Right. Is it, is it the thing that forms a line of demarcation? Hmm. between whether you are worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. In short, <laughs> my answer would be yes. How often do we think of that idea of loving neighbor as the central point of being a follower of Jesus? Like if we boil everything down to the fine, no, if we boil everything down like maple syrup, sap to syrup, the thing we get is love God and love 
neighbor. And in the final analysis, the great question of saved or lost is a question of how we treated neighbor. Can it be that simple? If it's that simple, how does that inform the way we understand our faith, the way we understand our place and purpose in the world? Notice these words from 1 John. You might recognize the text. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of who? Oh, maybe you can't read it, sorry. Is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's it, simple, clear. So Paul asked the question, TJ's got some things to share. He's, he's put some stuff in here, so I've got to shut up pretty quick and uh, let him. Um, but I, I wanted to share this text to you, Romans 3. You might be asking a question similar to the one Paul asks, Romans 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? If he were here today, he would ask, what's the point then of being a Seventh-day Adventist? If loving neighbor is the point, and whoever loves neighbor is going to be part, is going to participate in the future kingdom of heaven, what's the point of being a Seventh-day Adventist? Here's Paul's answer, verse 2, 3, verse 2 of Romans. Much. There's a big deal to be a Seventh-day Adventist. There's great value in being a Seventh-day Adventist. And here's his answer. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles or the teachings of God. The value of being a Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh Adventist are the insights God has gifted us into his character and into the pieces that make us lovers of God and lovers of neighbor. In other words, it's this clear model or pathway to becoming radical lovers. And we see that reflected. <clears throat> Go to our next, next text, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Hmm. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So they were really good at being exact in the small things, right? I need to give this amount of herbs, right? The things that cost very little, it was easy for them to give. And because they were so laser focused on these things, it gave the impression of piety. Hmm. But it was an illusion. It meant nothing. It was simply form and formality. And they were empty inside, devoid of the love of God, devoid of what he required. Hmm. This next statement. Many today are making a similar mistake. They separate their duties into two distinct classes. The one class is made up of great things to be regulated by the law of God. The other class is made up of so-called little things in which the command, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is ignored. This sphere of work is left to caprice, subject to inclination or impulse. Thus the character is marred 
and the religion of Christ misrepresented. Mm. We suffer from the same thing. Misrepresenting the character of Christ. I don't know if there's anything worse for an individual that would define themselves as a Christian than to misrepresent who Christ is. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty potent. Let's go to the next slide. This is where I wanna make a particular connection. Those whom Christ condemns in the judgment may have known little of theology. Or commends, commends. What did I say? I'm sorry. Condemns. Oh, sorry. Those who commence in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly. Those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children Mm. of God. So there's that connection between those acts of kindness and what it means to do the will of God. Hmm. That's the foundation. That's the basis for how we, to, how we are to live our lives. Mm-hmm. Everything else builds on that. Mm-hmm. But if you can't get that piece right, your foundation will crumble. Hmm. And could we also say that loving neighbor is the point of everything else. Like that's the great pinnacle. All of our theological understanding, the trajectory of that theology is to love neighbor radically. Then these words, the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within when the sunshine of heaven fills the heart and is revealed in countenance when it is natural to us Mm -hmm. to help to step out and take that risk let's go to this one on uh, slide 29 question here what does it mean to keep the commandments and uh, there are these comments And this is the condition one the condition of salvation specified was the doing of the commandments of God merely to profess to believe the commandments of God while following the example of the priest and the Levite who left the needy suffering one to die without lifting a hand to help him will not ensure eternal life he who treats a suffering soul in this way reveals the fact that he does not love his neighbor as himself and his profession has no practical value so remember for John's comments in 1st John 4 7 and 8 God is Love, the one who doesn't love, doesn't know. Like, that's the point. God is love. Salvation means becoming like him in how we relate to those around us. That statement, that the the condition of salvation, Mm. that's what it's all about Mm -hmm. in doing the commandments. It's an active thing, Mm. right? It's, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's that, that, that verb, it's movement associated with it. Not just checking off the list of things that, that I have done, 
right, to, to, to please God or to appease God, but it's living a life like God. Yep, that's right. So we're going to cut this next one short, but um, let's read the first to the ellipse. We're going to go to the ellipse on this one, and then we're going to catch the last sentence in the next slide. The parable of the Good Samaritan outlines true missionary work, and in this work, God's people are all to have a part. No one is excused who neglects the duty he owes to his fellow man. In doing, this, in doing this work, we fulfill the law of God. You might remember this verse, Galatians 5, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the last part of this next slide, it is impossible, not sure you can see it, You'll be able to look at it in the slide deck. It is impossible for those who profess allegiance to the law of God to correctly represent the principles of that Decalogue while sliding its holy injunctions to love neighbor as themselves. And then, uh, let's see, I don't know if you have a preference. There's, there's 37 that's really good, but you may have a preference in those three of which one you'd like no, to We can share. do 37. In placing among them the helpless and the poor to be dependent upon their care, Christ tests his professed followers. By our love and service for his needy children, we prove the genuineness of our love for him. To neglect them is to declare ourselves false disciples, strangers to Christ and his love. You know, what this brings me back to is, is um, you know, what we see in Matthew, right? Matthew 7 and Matthew 25. There is this distinction that's made. Um, there is a separation of those who simply lived the life of Christ. It wasn't about doctrine. Mm. It wasn't about anything else but living that life of sacrifice, of willingness to help. Mm -hmm. I think we've got to do 38 too because this one kind of puts the pieces together uniquely and it uh, let me put it on the screen for you there the call to the gospel supper is to be given with decided earnestness god's people are to come into oneness in the proclamation of the essential truths that are to be the test of character in these last days notice the character reference christians are to work under one head jesus christ is our leader everyone who bears the seal of god will do as his leader did he will go about doing good, forgetting self in the effort to help others. Notice how all of this, this, these essential truths boil down to this life of going about doing good, forgetting self in the effort to help and bless. The example of the great head of the church is to be followed in every respect. We talk about this great test of character. I, I, I find it interesting and I'll leave it to you to go back and study. But considering what we've looked at in Isaiah 58 and how God desires for us to honor and worship on the Sabbath, like that, that term test of character and then test of the Sabbath. If his desire for us is to live the Sabbath out in a, in a way that ensures that we are caring for the needy, what is the test at the end of time really about? Mm. This idea that the Sabbath is a mechanism for character transformation. 
And you can see how these two things mm -hmm. tie together. Mm -hmm. It is of salvational importance that we understand these concepts, mm -hmm. that we see the connection that God is trying to make. He's asking us to honor him, not just in form or fashion, but in truly living out and developing his character. Mm. The last two slides left. The next one is a character slide. And uh, TJ, this is, uh, I think, one of your favorites. What number is this? More there. Okay. Right. Yeah. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth, for, putteth, the sick, putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. So, so just... Pause on that sentence. Christ is waiting with longing desire to see, and I'll use different words, his reflection in his people. There's this longing, the hungering of Jesus right now is for him to see himself reflected in us. Now finish that last sentence. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. And here's what, how that character is defined in Scripture. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. That's the character that he's longing to see reproduced in us. Where like the Good Samaritan, when we see need, our knee-jerk reaction is active compassion. And here's the thing. Somebody is going to do this work. Hmm. Whether we decide to pick up the mantle or not, there will be a people that reflect his character. Mm. That's the invitation to be like him Amen. and the challenge as well. Amen. Thank you. We hope you were blessed by today's message. For more content or to connect with us, visit us online at brunswickadventist.church.